everyone. My name is Evelyn, and I'm your scripture reader today. Um, today's scripture reading comes from uh, John chapter 18, verse 12 to 27. Jesus faces Annas and Caiaphas. So the band of soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Peter denies Jesus. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest questions Jesus, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his, his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what, me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter denies Jesus again. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You, are, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the God. Thank you so much, Evelyn, for reading so well for us this morning. Uh, before we start the sermon, I just have an announcement to make, and it's a quite a sad one. Uh, many of you know Elder Joseph. Uh, Elder Joseph's mom passed away on Friday afternoon this week. Uh, so the family is now in a place of grief. And as a family of God, uh, it's, I think it's important for us to know, and we grieve with those who grieve. So if you do know Elder Joseph and Sir Ping, uh, Paul, Arabella, please do reach out to them and offer some words of uh, consolation during this very difficult time. Let's pray. Let's see God's help to understand His Word this morning. Father, we thank You so much that this is Your clear Word to us. We pray that as we come face to face with Your Word, that we will come face to face with the living Word, Jesus Christ, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, we're going through the last four chapters of the Gospel of John, and this coincides with what is known as the season of Lent. Now, some of you may be wondering, what exactly is the season of Lent? Well, friends, Lent simply means 40 and it's a 40-day period leading up to Easter. In some Christian traditions, 
uh, we take this as a season of grief. It's a season of grief as we prepare for the joy of Easter. It's a season of prayer, of repentance, and of self-denial. Now, some of you may wonder, uh, why do we need to go through this season of grief to prepare for joy? Why can't we get straight to the good part? Why can't we get straight to joy? Well, the Spanish mystic, St. John of the Cross, once said this, the endurance of darkness is the preparation for great light. The endurance of darkness is the preparation for great light. You see, friends, without coming to terms with the real darkness that's out there in the world and the real darkness that's right here in our hearts, we will never fully enjoy the real joy and the real love that Jesus brings at Easter. In fact, I found out this week that in Eastern Orthodox circles, now we're not Eastern Orthodox, but we can learn from them, there's an idea of a bright sadness during the season of Lent. There's sadness, but there's brightness in the sadness. One Orthodox priest puts it this way, it's the sadness of my exile, of the waste I have made of my life, and yet the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness and the joy of the recovered desire for God. You see, friends, there's sadness, but there's joy and there's brightness in that sadness. It is a bright sadness. And friends, as we come to John chapter 18, verse 12 to 27, there is great sadness in this passage. In fact, one of the commentators of this passage that I read calls this one of the saddest sections of all of Scripture. It's great sadness because Jesus is interrogated. He's condemned. He's denied and abandoned by his closest friends. But as we gaze into the sadness that's here, the darkness that's here, it is a bright sadness because it is a sadness that leads to inexplicable joy. So I want to invite you in this season to a bright sadness. And let's see three things from the text this morning. Faithlessness, faithfulness, and fulfillment. Faithlessness, faithfulness, and fulfillment. Come with me to verse 12. Verse 12 picks up the story from last week. Joel preached for us that portion of the scriptures, and we know that Jesus has been arrested. We saw that last week. Now, verse 13 says that he is brought to Anas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, some backgrounds necessary for us to make sense of the different characters. Anas, you see, was the original high priest, the original Jewish high priest. Now, this was usually a lifelong role, but for some reason, he fell out with the Roman governor at that time, and he was deposed. And in his place, Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law, was put in place instead of him. Now, the thing is, the Jewish people still had very high regard for Anas. He was the real high priest, even though Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the official high priest. And that explains why, in this passage, you will have a high priest questioning Jesus, and then he is handed to another high priest. The first high priest is Anas. He's the one questioning Jesus. But then he's handed over to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the official high priest, who then hands him over to the Romans to be tried and executed. So that explains why there's a bit of confusion in terms of the passage right there. Now the question is, why didn't the Jewish religious authorities like Jesus? What problem did they have with Jesus? Why did they want to try Jesus and ultimately condemn him and put him to death? Well, as we read John as a whole, there are two reasons why the Jews or the Jewish religious authorities did not like Jesus. The first comes to fruition and wholeness in John chapter 19, verse 7. 
Over there, we discover as they are talking to Pilate that they did not like the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and God himself. They considered this to be blasphemy because they knew that Jesus was claiming to be divine. Now, in spite of all the signs and wonders that Jesus did, all the things in the Old Testament that wrote about the coming King, the coming Messiah, they did not believe that Jesus, the one who was with them, was that Messiah, was indeed the Son of God, was indeed divine. So that was the first problem that they had with Jesus. They did not really believe that he was the Son of God. What was the second reason? The first was theological. The second is more political. In John 11:48, it shows that the Jews were fearful that if too many people would follow Jesus, the Romans would see that as a Jewish uprising and quash them. Just as they had removed the high priest, they were afraid that the Romans would come in and remove their temple and remove their nation and obliterate their Jewish identity. So these were the two fears that they had that were driving all the things that they were doing, ultimately interrogating Jesus and condemning him to his death. They didn't believe that he was the son of God, that he was divine. And on the other hand, they did not want their nation to be obliterated by the Roman overlords. Now, friends, if you think very carefully about it, they were driven by their fears. They were driven by their fears to do what they did. And if you think even harder about it, those fears are only legitimate and valid because they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They did not believe that he was the Son of God. They did not believe that he was God. They did not see that he was indeed divine. If they did, they would not have needed to fear the Romans. Now, friends, what are the fears that drive your life? Friends, a lot of what we choose to do in our lives, what we put our children through, where we decide to study and work and live, a lot of those things are driven by the fears that are in our hearts. What are those fears that drive you and that shape the life that you have right now? Now, I don't presume that everyone here is a Christian, but just imagine, if you're not a Christian, that Jesus' claims to be the Son of God and God himself are true. Just imagine that the claims of the Scriptures, that if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all of these things will be added unto you also. Just imagine that those things truly are true. What would those things do? What would that do to the fears that shape and drive your life? The Scottish Baptist pastor, Oswald Chambers, was famous for writing a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. He once said this, When you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you fear everything else. If you fear God, you fear nothing else. If you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You see, the religious Jewish authorities, they were driven by their fears. But if they truly believed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, as he claimed and as he showed through his signs and his wonders, then there was nothing for them to fear. Friends, in this season of bright sadness, we're given an opportunity to come face to face with our fears and to see whether they're valid or invalid. Friends, when we fear God, we need fear nothing else. 
Now the scene then quickly switches to Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was an early Christian leader, one of the early disciples. He was a fisherman. And verses 15 to 18 shows us Peter following Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest and denying Jesus. Come with me to verse 15. It tells us here in the text, in verse 16, that Peter followed another disciple into the courtyard of the priest. Now, this other disciple knew the high priest and so could gain access for Peter into the courtyard. He spoke to the servant girl, verse 17, who allowed Peter into the courtyard. Now, as the servant girl led Peter into the courtyard, she asked him a question. You also, verse 17, are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, the way that the Greek is constructed here, she's expecting the answer, no. She's asking out of incredulity. She's asking, in a sense, out of a mocking manner. You see, it was not popular to follow Jesus. So she's saying, surely, surely you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, commentators tell us that she's quite harmless. She's just a servant girl. She wouldn't have been able to do anything to harm Peter if he had said yes. But it was an embarrassing situation for Peter. Have you ever been in a social setting where saying yes to a question would embarrass you? Maybe it's a new group of friends that you have, and they think of you as sophisticated and liberal and open-minded. And then you say something, and they're stunned. And they turn to you, and they say to you, surely, surely you are not one of those people. Surely you're not a Christian. Surely you're not one of those people that believes that the Bible is true. Now, saying yes in that kind of a situation wouldn't bring you much harm. I mean, no one is going to kill you for saying yes. But it would embarrass you, wouldn't it? It would make you look like a country bumpkin rather than the sophisticated individual that you want to put forward. And this is the kind of situation that Peter was in. The servant girl was harmless. She couldn't harm him at all, but she could embarrass him. And he capitulated to that embarrassment and denied Jesus the first time. It was relatively easy for him to say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus at this point in time. But instead, Peter could not bear with the embarrassment of admitting that he is a follower of this soon-to-be-crucified Messiah and Savior. And so he says, I am not. Why in the world does he do this? I think it's verse 18 and 25 give us a hint. In verse 18 and 25, where do we find Peter? We find Peter standing and warming himself by a charcoal fire. You see, friends, it was very cold during that time of the year. And where do we find Peter? We find Peter in two instances, not just one, but two instances, standing and warming himself. He was making himself comfortable in the cold night. You see, friends, at the moment of asking, Peter cared more about his comfort than he did Jesus Christ. It was comfort over Christ. Two times. Verse 18, he was standing and warming himself after denying Jesus one time. And then look at verse 25. It says he is standing and warming himself, making himself comfortable. And this is the second time he denies Jesus. Now, this time, it gets more uncomfortable and more dangerous because it's not just a servant girl. She comes with a few others to ask him the same question. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? 
So the ante has been upped. It gets more uncomfortable and slightly more dangerous, but still pretty much harmless. But Peter is warming himself by the charcoal fire, making himself comfortable. And so he says, I am not comfort over Christ. And because he's given into comfort, when he's confronted the third time, and when it would truly cost him something, he caves. Look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? Remember last week, Peter was over-enthusiastic. He took out a sword and he cut off Malchus's ear. One of Malchus's relatives was a servant of the high priest and he was there and he recognized Peter. And he asked Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? Weren't you the one that cut off my cousin's ear? Now, in this instant, saying yes would have cost Peter something. The cousin of Malchus could have been so angry at what Peter had done, they could have beaten him up or cut off his ear in revenge. It now would cost him something. But because he had compromised for comfort when it would cost him nothing, Peter was now not prepared to stand up for Jesus when it truly meant something. He will compromise here because he has compromised much earlier. And what was his compromise? His compromise was comfort over Christ. Friends, as we see what's happening in Ukraine, many of us are inspired by the strength, the resolve, and the sacrifice of the Ukrainians. Many are moving back to Ukraine to defend their country. And many of us are asking, would we do the same if our own nation were invaded, if our own nation were at war? Would we have the same strength and resolve and love for country to defend our land and our people? And I think many of you would say, I'm not so sure. Friends, as a pastor, and I hear of how brothers and sisters in places like Ukraine or China, places where it's hard, it's challenging to be a Christian. When I hear of how they continue to gather to worship Jesus, when they continue to witness to him when it's against the law, when the bombs are falling, it challenges me. But it also forces me to ask the question, one covenant church, if we were in a similar situation, would we still stand for Jesus? Would we still gather for worship as he has called us to? Or would we give in far too easily? And I'll be honest with you, friends. As I look at my own heart and as I look at us, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Why, friends? Because we, and I'm including myself into this here, we give in so easily to our creature comforts. We make small compromises that we think mean nothing, but they ultimately lead to massive denials. Didn't sleep well, don't go to church. Slept too well, also don't go to church. Sermon too long, 
don't go to church. Sermon too short, waste of time. Also don't go to church. Church too noisy, don't go to church. Church too quiet, my house is so quiet. And we slowly drift away from the Lord of the church. Now friends, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm putting myself in this category because I see myself giving my heart to creature comforts. But as I studied this text today, this week, I was challenged by what it means to follow Jesus. That small compromises can lead to massive denials. Now, many of you will know Cindy, uh, my wife. Uh, when we began dating, she was a house officer. So the hours were crazy and she had to do long calls. And sometimes she would do calls on Saturday night, which means Sunday morning, uh, she was just really tired. Uh, she told me, and I, I just observed it. She never, she never told me, I just observed it. No matter how tired she was from the call the night before, she made a commitment to herself that she would be on ch in church on Sunday morning. Now, this is not a legalistic thing. This is not for everybody. And there were Sundays that was just, she was just too tired or the, the walk-arounds in the morning were too long and she couldn't make it to church. So th th is this not an absolute thing? But she made a commitment in her heart that no matter how tired she was, even if it meant for her to sleep through that service, at least she was in the church. I asked her, dear, why are you doing this? You know, people would forgive you for not being in church. They understand you're a house officer. You're making great sacrifices to save dying children. They will understand if you sleep in on a Sunday morning. And this is what she said to me. She said, you know what? I know. But I also know how easy it is to use my profession as an excuse to not be serious with God and His church. And so I'm making this commitment as a way of not sliding. Even if I only get five or ten minutes out of the sermon or out of the service, I'm making this commitment because I know if I don't, I'll get tardy. And I'll use my profession as an excuse not to be serious with God and the church. That's why I married her. That's why I married her. She's an amazing lady. Now, she doesn't know I shared that, so she's coming for the second service. Don't tell her in between. You see, friends, when we make small compromises, they lead to massive denials. They lead to massive denials. And so often we are shaped not just by the fears in our lives, but by the comforts in our lives. And if you think about it, especially children, anything good and beautiful in life, friends, young and old, requires some level of effort and some level of discomfort. Think about it. Any hobby or sport that you have, maybe you play a musical instrument or you play a sport or you want to get good in a particular subject or you want to read, all of that involves some level of effort and discomfort. And friends, it's not legalism to point that out. It's merely reality. It's merely reality. If we enthrone comfort over Christ, if we enthrone our fears over Christ, we end up denying Him for repentance. Uh, in 1987, uh, Anglican theologian J.I. Pecker, he wrote a book, not a, such a well-known book, and he called it Hot Tub Religion. How many of you know that book, Hot Tub Religion, by J.I. Pecker? I haven't read it, but I read an excerpt. Now, very interestingly, J.I. Pecker, this very distinguished Englishman, he wrote this book because he was inspired when he was sitting in a hot tub, okay, a jacuzzi. 
let me read you an excerpt of what he said. The other day, I spent much of a wet Saturday afternoon in a hot tub. It struck me that the hot tub is the perfect symbol of the modern root in religion. This was in 1987. The hot tub experience is sensuous, relaxing, floppy, laid back, not in any way demanding, but very, very nice, even to the point of being great fun. Many today want Christianity to be like that and labor to make it so. When modern Christian man turns to religion, what he wants is total tickling relaxation, the sense of being at once soothed, supported, and effortlessly invigorated. Now, certainly a rhythm of life that includes relaxation is right. So he's not saying don't sit in a hot tub. I mean, he's writing the book in a hot tub. Without these, Christianity would be less godly and less lively. But if there were no more to our Christianity than these, if we embrace a self-absorbed hedonism of relaxation and happy feelings while dodging tough tasks, unpopular stances, and exhausting relationships... J.I. Packer says we should fall short of biblical God-centeredness and of the cross-bearing life to which Jesus calls us. That's written in 1987, friends. How much more true of it is, how much more true is that of us today? So friends, in this season of bright sadness, Jesus is gently inviting us to come to terms with the darkness not just in the world, but in our hearts. And perhaps we have been more faithless than we think we have. We've made small compromises, thinking that they matter little. But it's these small compromises to lead, that lead to massive denials. And in spite of the faithlessness of our own hearts and the people in the story, Jesus remains faithful. There is a brightness in the sadness. Let's look at verse 19. While Peter is warming himself, verse 19 tells us that Jesus is being interrogated by the high priests. Now they ask him about his disciples and his teaching. But in what Jesus tells them, you notice that he says nothing about his disciples, but he defends his teaching. What is he doing here? Even in his hour of need, Jesus is protecting his followers. He's not saying anything at all about his disciples, but he is defending his teaching. Look at verse 20 and 21. Jesus says to them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I have one consistent message. There's nothing more I can tell you, religious leaders. Everything I've said publicly is what I will say to you. I have one consistent message. Whether I'm in private or I'm in public, I'm the same person. My message is the same. There's no point pressing me for anything more. My message is the same. You see, friends, Peter had one message in private. I'm a follower of Jesus. I will die for him. But he had another message in public. No, I'm not. It's too embarrassing. It's too difficult. Jesus, on the other hand, had one consistent message. He did not falter. He did not fail. And it cost him. Look at verse 22. 
An officer struck Jesus with his hand for answering the way he did. Not at all comfortable, not at all nice and warm and fuzzy by the charcoal fire. Jesus was struck in the face. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't back down out of fear. Look at verse 23. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Show me where I've gone wrong, Jesus is saying. Show me where I've gone wrong. He's challenging them. He's standing firm. He's not being driven by fear and comfort. He's driven by doing the will of God. And the fact is, none of them could point out where Jesus had gone wrong. And that's where the conversation ends. Fear compels them. And verse 24, And that sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, who then sends him to a trial with Pilate, which we will see next week, and eventually to his death. Fear and comfort, friends, didn't drive Jesus. Only the desire to do God's will. In John 4.34, Jesus said, My food, that which is my source of nourishment and joy and comfort, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, friend, in this passage, the faithfulness of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the faithlessness of Anas, Caiaphas, and Peter. The faithfulness of Jesus in this passage stands in stark contrast to the faithlessness of you and I as we capitulate to fear and to comfort. But it is this same faithfulness, friends, that fulfills God's plan for the world and for your life. Look at verse 27. It says that the rooster crowed after Peter's final denial of Jesus. Now, Jesus had already said this would happen. In John 13, 38, when Peter said to Jesus, I will follow you, I will die for you, Jesus replied, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You see, friends, Peter's denial of Jesus did not catch Jesus by surprise. Peter knew full well that Peter would deny him. In fact, Peter must deny him. Why is that? Well, look at verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas had meant that it's better to get rid of Jesus than for the Romans to come and attack us. But it's another case, as we will see many times in the Gospel of John, where someone spoke better than he knew. It was indeed better that one man should die for the people, but not in the way Caiaphas thought. You see, when Jesus lived, he was being faithful in the place of the faithless. And when Jesus died, he was dying in the place of the faithless. Why? So that the faithless can be restored to faith and to do good. So that they can be forgiven of their sins and be given a new record and the ability and the power to do good. 
after Jesus dies and rises again, in John 21, which we will preach in a few weeks' time, Jesus draws near to Peter, the same Peter that denies him three times. And three times he says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. This is incredible. To the one who had denied him because of comfort and fear, Jesus says, shepherd my people, even as I have shepherded them. I can still use you in spite of all your failures. Chris Colquitt is a pastor who works with students, and recently he wrote an article, wrote an article called Reflections of a Millennial Pastor in a Gen Z World, and I'm just going to close with this. Now, for those of you who don't know, millennials are those born between 1981 and 1996. So they're between 25 and 40 years old. How many millennials do we have in the room? Hallelujah. I see your hand, brother and sister. Gen Z, on the other hand, are those born between 1997 and 2012. They're between the ages of 8 and 24 years old right now. How many, how many Gen Zs do we have in the room? Okay, I see your hand too. Okay. Now, they're similar, but they're also different because they grew up or are growing up in very different times under very different influences. Millennials, you grew up in a very optimistic time. So the message that you've been sold is, you are strong. You believe that you can change the world. Yes, yes, the world has many problems. But as long as I put my heart and my mind to it and I follow my passion, things can change. I can be the change I want to see in the world. So you are confident. You're excited. And this is a very good thing. But at the same time, you're also a bit arrogant. You're also a bit arrogant because you think you can make these huge changes. But moreover, as you begin to live life and you get married and you work a job, you find that most things in life are not very radical. Actually, they're very ordinary. And what happens then is you get easily discouraged, disillusioned, and bored. And friends, maybe for you, you are like Peter, who says to Jesus, I will follow you. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I can do it. And maybe for you, you need to hear the gentle words of Jesus saying to you, the rooster will crow, not crow till you have denied me three times. You're not as strong as you think you are. And maybe when you understand that, you can become truly useful because you're not just excited and you're not easily disillusioned and discouraged. You're humble and yet confident at the same time. Gen Z, you grew up in a much sadder time, and I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you grew up in a much sadder time. The world is a lot angrier, more polarized, and you have this message that you believe that you are weak. You already know that the rooster will not crow till you've denied Jesus, not three times, but a thousand times. You understand that you are weak. Now, friends, the good thing is, for you, Gen Z, the stigma surrounding things like mental health issues has been removed. And so you feel confident, and rightly so, to speak about your mental health struggles, your issues with depression and anxiety, and anything else that comes along the way. And this is a very good thing, because it then helps you to gain access to the help that you need. You don't need to deny these things. There's no stigma to discussing mental health issues. 
Now that's a very good thing. But Gen Z, here's the problem. You may be tempted to define your life by your weaknesses. You may be tempted to define your life by your fears, your discomforts, and your disorders. And you may be tempted to think that all that there is to life is fragility, that there is no real hope for strength. There's no real hope for change. So yours is, as Yen put it, not a mere Christianity, but a meh Christianity. And perhaps for you, you need to hear the gentle words of Jesus saying to you, I have died for you. And my death for you isn't just to forgive you of your sins, it's to restore you to strength. Not your strength, not your arrogance, but my strength. And as I restore you to strength, I say to you, as I said to Peter, feed my lambs. You can be weak and you can be strong at the very same time because Jesus was weak and he was strong for us. So friends, young or old, weak or strong, religious or irreligious, in this season of bright sadness, we have the boldness to face the darkness and faithlessness that is really there in our hearts and in the world and we have the ability to have hope and joy because of the faithfulness of Jesus. He was strong for us so that we can be strong in him. Let's pray. Father, in this season of Lent, Lead us, Lord, we pray, through a bright sadness. Help us not to be afraid to plumb the depths of our darkness and our sinfulness. Help us not to be in despair seeing what's there. Because as we lift our gaze up, we see the cross. We see the sacrifice that has brought us freedom. We see a faithfulness that obliterates our faithlessness. So we pray for each and every one of us in this season of Lent, for those of us who are believers, that, Father, we would truly come before you in repentance that we may have true joy at Easter. We pray also for those among us who have been investigating the Christian faith, that this would be a season that they are convicted and brought near to Jesus. Help us, O Lord. Help us, O Lord. Father, we want to lift up Joseph and all those who have lost loved ones in recent days. We know, Father, the pain and the darkness of losing a loved one. There is, in some sense, no greater pain than to lose someone we love. And Father, we pray that your comfort would draw near. And Father, that those among us who are grieving would sense in their hearts from our community a permission, not only a permission, Lord, but an encouragement to lament and to grieve, but to grieve and lament as those who have great hope. And may we, Father, be a source of great encouragement and comfort to those who are grieving. So be with Joseph today, we pray. Be with Xioping, be with Paul, be with Arabella, be with the entire family as they mourn, as they mourn during this season. And draw near to those who are grieving losses, Lord. 
Father, we thank you so much for our marriage preparation course that is beginning today. And we do pray, Father, that it would not just be a time where uh, we learn things, but it would be a time where Jesus is exalted, where we see that marriage is ultimately about your relationship, Jesus' relationship with the church, and that our hearts would be changed and transformed by that vision. We thank you also for the community group leaders training that we've been going through. And we pray that much fruit be born there, not just of learning your word, although that is so important, but of rediscovering the gospel, of communing with one another, of being equipped in our weakness to be strong, like Peter, shepherding God's people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.